Uh, let's begin. I want to show you an image. This is, uh, this is an art piece by a modern artist named Alexa Mead, and this is called The Blue Man. <laughs> Not that creative of a title. Um, and upon first viewing, this piece looks like just your standard sort of run-of-the-mill, modern impressionist, high-contrast painting, except this is not a painting. This is a person. Let me show you the next image. This is Alexa Mead painting an actual human. This is what she does. Now, most artists take real-life subjects and then paint them onto flat 2D canvases. That's what most artists do. Alexa Mead is famous for doing something different. She takes real life subjects and paints on them as the canvas in such a way as to flatten them into what looks like a 2D image. Now, Alexa Mead's work is stunning. You can look her up on Google. She does this sort of work all the time. It's, it's fascinating. Like, you would never know if you didn't know, looking at her pieces, that these were real people that were being painted upon. Like, fascinating stuff. But I share this with you. I share her, her work with you because, one, you should check it out. It's, like, so strange and weird and surreal and, and high level. But I share it with you because it actually reminds me, in a, in a sort of sad way, it reminds me of something that we do as humans. It reminds me of the ways in which, at our worst, we don't always do this, and not all of us do this, but all of us, I think, in, in some form or fashion, are at least tempted to do this. It reminds me of the way in which you and I, as human beings, we sometimes, at our worst moments, try to flatten nuanced complex human beings into these sort of flat, two-dimensional caricatures. You know what I'm saying? Like we are surrounded every single day in this room with our family and friends, in our workplace or at school or just at the grocery store or the coffee shop or sitting in traffic. We are surrounded by nuanced, complex human beings who have all sorts of histories and stories and struggles and pains and doubts and anxieties. But we are so self-centric and self-centered that often we just caricature one another. It's like, oh, I, I know everything there is to know about that guy. Oh, this person in my office, like, yeah, I know what they're about. And we just, we flatten them into these two-dimensional sort of images that are totally inaccurate. The writer Malcolm Gladwell in his book, Talking to Strangers, he puts it this way. He says, we think we can easily see into the hearts of others based on the flimsiest of clues. We jump at the chance to judge strangers. Now we would never do that to ourselves, of course. We are nuanced and complex and enigmatic, but the stranger is easy. Why do I begin here? I begin here because there is a tension that we are going to jump into today. There's a passage in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew's biography of Jesus, which you and I, if you've been around for a while, we've been journeying slowly through the Gospel of Matthew for a year and a half, almost two years now. And we arrive at a text today where it seems like, at least on the surface, Jesus does what so many of us are tempted to do. 
And the story, at least on the surface, paints Jesus, honestly, you guys, in a terrible light. He seems bigoted. The story seems like Jesus allows the biases and assumptions and even prejudices of his day to lead him toward the dehumanizing of a stranger. It's a really hard story. So let's jump in. Let, let me read it to you. Matthew chapter 15. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And a Canaanite woman, pay attention to that word, a Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David. Pay attention to that phrase as well. Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to Jesus crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. And Jesus did not answer a word, which is like pretty rude. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. And he, Jesus, answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. And the woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. And he, Jesus, replied, and this is where it gets really tense, you guys. It's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Holy smokes. This is in the Bible, you guys. There was like 75% of me that was like, do we just skip this passage? <laughs> like, no one will notice, you know? First, Jesus ignores a desperate woman. This woman isn't asking for wealth or riches. She's asking Jesus to heal her daughter. This is a genuine request. It's a good request. It's the request of a, of a loving mother. And what does Jesus do? First, he ignores her, which is rude enough. And then what does he do? He essentially calls her a dog. You guys, this is not D-A-W-G, yo, what's up, my dog, kind of dog. This is like, dog, you are the level of a canine, subhuman, less than human sort of derogatory term. In fact, in the first century Jewish world, dog was the most derogatory term that a Jewish person could use to describe a non-Jew, a Gentile. I mean, it's, it's racist, essentially. This is in the Bible. What do we do with this? I remember growing up, some of you know my story, just as an immigrant kid who didn't speak English for the first couple of years of my sort of elementary school life. And what's so interesting is that though I could barely speak English, within weeks I became acclimated and utterly familiar with derogatory terms. Because it's the stuff that sticks with you. I didn't know what the words meant, but I knew that when kids spewed those words my direction, it was not a good thing. That they were ostracizing me, they were marginalizing me, they were pushing me to the outside. Is that what Jesus is doing here? Is that the sort of person Jesus was and is, maybe? Here's the thing. Uh, if you were around last Sunday, some of you were here last Sunday, I don't know if you recall, but we studied and deep dove into the story that's right before this story we're in today. And it was a story in which, long story short, it's a story in which Jesus says to religious leaders, he tells them, hey, stop playing religion. 
He calls them hypocrites, and that word hypocrite in the Greek is a word that literally means actor. It literally means someone who wears a mask. And so the story leading up to this story is a story in which Jesus tells religious leaders, looks are deceiving. That's what Jesus says in the story leading up to this story. And that's key to unlocking what's happening in this passage. Let's go back to the beginning of the text. First couple verses. It says, leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and a Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Interesting. Matthew, the writer, the biographer here, describes this woman as a Canaanite woman. Here's what's really interesting. This story is also told in the other gospels. And the other gospel writers describe this woman as a Syrophoenician woman. And Syrophoenician is actually a much more accurate contemporary description of who this woman is. The word Canaanite at the time of this story was an utterly outdated word. It was a word that people did not use at the time. There weren't technically Canaanites anymore. And yet Matthew describes her as a Canaanite woman. The word Canaanite at the time was a historical word. And it's a historical word that was used to describe way back in their history, like almost 1,500 years before this story takes place. It was a word used to describe the enemies of God's people. We talk about this a lot, but the Moses story, the Exodus story, when God leads the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt 40 years through the wilderness to enter into what he called the promised land. When they enter the promised land, there is an enemy in that land that God must conquer on the behalf of his people. Who were, that, who, who were those people? They were the Canaanites. That's this word. That story took place almost 1,500 years earlier. And Matthew uses intentionally that word. He says this woman is a Canaanite woman. Why does he do this? Matthew is being really intentional about describing this woman as the descendant of a pagan people who were the enemies of God. In other words, what Matthew was trying to do here is paint the picture of a woman who is so far from belonging to God's people as God's people understood it in his time. Make sense? That's important because the next line does something totally unexpected. This Canaanite woman, the enemy, a pagan, a Gentile, totally on the outside of God's family, this Canaanite woman calls Jesus what? The son of David. Son of David, that phrase, and the David there is King David, who like slayed Goliath, was one of the greatest kings in Israel's history, that guy. That phrase, son of David, at the time of Jesus, when this story takes place, was a distinctly Jewish term that only the Jews, God's chosen people, only they would have used that term. And specifically, it was a term that was infused with significance. The term son of David was used to describe the person that God's people believed God would someday send to rescue them from um, all that ailed them. 
all of the world powers that had oppressed them. God's people, the Jewish people at the time, were awaiting a Messiah. We'll talk more about that next Sunday. They were waiting a Savior who would come and rescue them, not just help them, totally rescue them, liberate them, and free them. That's who they were waiting for, and one of the most popular phrases they would use to describe that person they were waiting for was the phrase, son of David. So let me show you this next image. A sort of simplistic caricature of this story looks like this. If someone is described as a Canaanite, it is very clear they are not God's people. This was the cultural norm. If you're a Canaanite, that's such a clear indication. Oh, you're God's enemy. You're not God's people. But if someone were to describe anybody as the son of David, if somebody uttered that phrase, son of David, it was a clear indicator you are God's people. Oh, you know our story. You know the promise that awaits us. This is the simplistic caricature. What happens in this story, you guys? I'll show you the next image. The complex reality of this story is that this woman is a Canaanite. She does not belong to God's people. And yet, she declares Jesus is the son of David, which is an utterly God's people thing to say. That's this woman. Why do I share this with you? Because when we're honest with ourselves, this is how we feel often in life. Like we're, we're living through our week, Monday to Saturday or whatever, and there's a part of us, it's like, okay, yeah, I'm a Christian, I believe in the whole Jesus thing, but then there are other parts of our lives where like, dude, am I a Christian? Like all the stuff happening inside of me, the poor decisions and choices I so often make, I'm not, this is not like a finger, like this is self-indictment, right? This is not a judgmental finger. This is how I feel often. It's like I'm torn between these realities. How do we wrestle with this? Blurring the boundary lines between those who are God's people and those who are not God's people, this was a scandalous thing in Jesus' day. The writer, Toni Morrison, in an interview, she once uh, said this, that all paradises, all utopias are designed by who is not there by the people who are not allowed in. And this was utterly true in the first century Jewish world. God's people, the Jewish people at the time, they actually found this sort of strange comfort and confidence in the assumption that they were God's chosen people and that everybody else was not. This was a big deal for them. Their reality was constructed on the foundation of what they believed was a very privileged position. But what is Jesus doing here? He's blowing up their biases, their assumptions, and their prejudices. But to do that, he plays along for a while. Let's read the story again. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. And he, Jesus, answered, I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. What that means is, I was only sent to the left side of that circle. God's people, that's who I came for. He's playing along. And then the woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. And what does Jesus say? It is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to 
the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. What is happening here is that Jesus speaks, at least for a moment, the way a normal, average Jewish man would speak about a Gentile, Canaanite, pagan woman at the time. Jesus is playing the part, so to speak. Remember, the story right before this was Jesus telling religious leaders, stop playing the part. And then he enters this situation and he decides this is what it looks like when you play the part. So let me show you what it looks like when you play the part. By playing the part of the racist, bigoted Jew. Let me play that part for a while. That's what Jesus does. But the woman is desperate and she's undeterred. She doesn't care about who she's supposed to be. She doesn't care about that beautiful graphic I just showed you, right? She doesn't care about those circles. Which circle am I in? She does not care. Because before she is a Canaanite, before she's anything else, before she is, you know, like a part of God's people or not a part of God's people, what is she? She is a mother who loves her daughter. And she's in need. This is such an important word for all of us. Whether you think you're like a good, moral, upstanding citizen who sort of deserves God's grace or you're an absolute wreck or you're an absolute mess. Whether you think, oh my gosh, I've lived my entire life and I've tried to do the right thing and I've tried to be a good person so God must care about me. Or you look at your story and you're like, I've made an utter mess of my life. There is nothing but wreckage in my history. Shame, guilt, the stuff I've done, the stuff that's been done to me. Whichever circle you find yourself in, what you and I need, the only thing we need is desperate need. This woman doesn't care. Canaanite, Syrophoenician, Gentile, pagan, whatever. I am a mother and I have a need for the daughter that I love and I believe this man can provide for that need. That is all that's necessary. The woman believes that Jesus is the Messiah. That is clear here. She would not call him the son of David if she didn't. And although Jesus is playing the part a bit, he's also intentional about creating a little bit of healthy tension. Remember what he says in verse 24. Jesus answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Now, most scholars agree what's happening here is that Jesus is addressing the order of God's salvation plan. This is really important. From the beginning, the beginning of the Bible, like the beginning of the human story, from the beginning, God's plan was to initiate rescue to and through his people, his chosen people Israel. That's clear in the Bible. But even here, Jesus is sort of setting up a surprise because from the beginning, God's plan was always to initiate rescue to his chosen people, but not to end there, to initiate rescue to Israel, his chosen people, so that in and through them, he might initiate rescue for the whole world. Let me show you. Uh, Genesis chapter 12. This is God speaking to Abraham. Abraham is like the father of the nations. The Israelite nation comes from Abraham's descendants. What does God say? 
I will make you, Abraham, into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And then here's the key. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth, everybody, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, rich, poor, male, female, whoever, everybody, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And then in Matthew, at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, which you and I will get to uh, in April of 2024. That's not a joke. That's literally when we will end this thing. So just hang tight. We're almost there. Another nine months. Okay, it's like having a baby. Let's get to the end together. Matthew 28, at the very end, the closing lines of this biography of Jesus, what does Jesus say? Jesus came to them, his disciples, and he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of who? All nations. Everybody. This is where Jesus is taking the story. And this pagan, Gentile, Canaanite woman understands this in a way here, in this story, that even the most religious Jews of Jesus' day did not understand. They failed to see. The surprising faith in Jesus that this woman shows leads her to surprising belonging. What happens? Matthew 15, verse 25, the story tells us what? The woman came, and what does she do? She knelt before him. She kneels, she bows before Jesus, and she says, Lord, help me. The word knelt is the Greek word proskuneo, from which we get, like the English word, to pro to prostrate yourself, like to completely lay down before someone. We don't do this in our culture today, right? When's the last time you knelt before someone? Like imagine going to the office tomorrow and your boss walks in the room and you're like, hello, boss. And then you knelt, like your boss would be like, what is happening? What? We don't do this in our culture today, so we don't really have a point of reference for how significant this is. But in the ancient world, kneeling and bowing was a public sign and declaration that the person you were kneeling to, you believed to be superior. It's an act of reverence and awe and honor. In fact, here's what's really interesting. The word for kneel is the Greek word proskuneo, like I just told you. The word proskuneo is actually the same exact word that is translated throughout the New Testament into the word worship. So anytime a person in the New Testament kneels or bows, they are essentially, in essence, in that culture, worshiping. This is what worship looks like. Worship is not just singing the songs. Worship is an act of adoration and reverence and awe. It is an act of kneeling before Jesus as king, as Lord and Savior of your life. And this is what this woman does. And this is the only thing that's necessary. It doesn't matter that she's Gentile or Canaanite. It doesn't matter what she's done or what's been done to her. It doesn't matter what sort of guilt or shame or anxiety or uncertainty or doubt she wrestles with. The only thing she needs is desperation enough and belief enough that Jesus can do what she believes he can do, bring healing and restoration and wholeness to a daughter she loves. 
loves. Because in her desperation, she kneels before Jesus. And that changes everything. She doesn't buy all of the caricatures about who she is or who she isn't. You know what I'm saying? Here, let me show you another image. I think culturally in our day and age, this is often what happens. The, the chart on the right. We are told by culture over and over again, be yourself, be yourself. Now let me explain. By be yourself, listen, increasing self-awareness and pursuing a genuine, authentic, undivided life, being who you are with all people at all times, that is critically important. It's biblical. That's not what I mean by be yourself. What I mean is that in culture today, we are pushed toward this hyper-individualistic emphasis on orbiting all of our life and all of our decisions around our own pleasures and preferences and conveniences. Culture tells us, like, if it doesn't work for you, then it doesn't work. You do you. That's be yourself. And that sort of posture toward life inevitably leads to a worship of self. And when we worship ourselves, when the autonomous self is the thing we revere most, what it has to lead to is caricatures. The only way you can continue to prop up that way of thinking, that the aut autonomous self is the most important thing in life, is to caricature everybody else. You become this three-dimensional, nuanced, complex, enigmatic being, and everybody else is just like a flat 2D image. You understand them. They don't get you. Because you is all that matters. But the way of Jesus, the way that this woman understands, is different. What Jesus does is he invites us to surrender ourselves. To surrender ourselves to him and bow in worship and allegiance to him. Which leads this woman and anybody who wants it today to belonging in God's family. And how does Jesus respond to this woman's faith? Verse 28, Jesus says to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. That word great in the original language is mega. Jesus essentially says, woman, you've got Mega faith. I used to play the video game Mega Man when I was growing up. Did anybody play Mega Man? Okay, why was he called Mega Man? How come everyone was embarrassed about raising their hand? Mega Man was awesome, you guys. Don't be shy. It was the best. What the heck? Yeah. <clears throat> uh, why was he called Mega Man? Because he was awesome. <laughs> because he was like more powerful than all the bad guys. And that's what Jesus says to this pagan Canaanite woman. You have mega faith. This is what you are displaying right now. In spite of the fact that I was playing the part, pushing you to the edges, you refused to let go. You were relentless in your belief. This is mega faith. You know what's really interesting? In the Jesus biographies, the Gospels, Jesus uses this term, mega faith, great faith, mega faith. He uses it to describe people only two times. And you know who those people were? It's this Gentile woman and then a Gentile Roman soldier. Never someone who's like a part of God's people. Never a Jewish religious leader. 
He, he says to two people who are so far on the outside of God's family, those are the two people he says in the gospel stories, these two people, they've got mega faith. This woman finds healing and hope and belonging, not because she thinks Jesus is a miracle worker who can help her. She finds healing and hope and belonging because she believes Jesus is the Messiah. She's not here for Jesus to just help her. She's at the end of her rope, and she realizes she needs Jesus to rescue her. I'm going to invite Mark and the team back up, and we're going to sing and respond in a moment. Um, as I was reading and meditating on this story for the last few weeks, I couldn't help but see myself in this woman's shoes. Um, I've shared parts of my story here before, so um, apologies if this is like, you know, repetitive, but it's important. Uh, I grew up in the church. I grew up going to church, and I thought I was a Christian my entire life. I did the 90s evangelical sort of youth group subculture thing, um, you know, like listen to Jars of Clay on the weekends and Pearl Jam on the weekdays kind of thing, you know, um, DC Talk on the weekends, Nirvana on the, on the weekdays, that sort of tension. I lived between those two circles, essentially. And then my freshman year of college, as I was removed from the safe haven that was my youth group, my faith came crumbling down. And what I realized was I wasn't a follower of Jesus. I was a follower of youth culture, you know, youth group culture. And I spent a couple of years in my um, college days sort of navigating faith, trying to figure things out, and made an absolute wreck, an absolute mess of my life. I've shared bits and pieces of that story with you all here before. And then in my early 20s, after a few years of just really trying to find myself, I finally found myself completely alone. And I was at my lowest at that point. And here's what it came down to. I realized that just because I had done all the churchy things as a kid, it didn't mean I belonged in God's family. But on the flip side, what was so beautiful and profound to me was that just because I had been so far removed from all the churchy things for several years, it did not um, mean that I couldn't belong in God's family. All I needed was a recognition of my actual condition. And it wasn't until I realized that I didn't just need help from Jesus, that I needed rescue. It wasn't until I realized that I wasn't um, just low, I was totally lost. It wasn't until I got to that point that there was nothing and no one else that could um, rescue me and enfold me into God's kingdom other than Jesus himself. It wasn't until I got to that point that following Jesus became a reality in my life in my early 20s. And maybe that's you today. Maybe like this Gentile woman, you feel like you've always been on the outside. Maybe you show up week after week here to our church and there's something, there's a whisper in the back of your mind. It's like, man, you're not like these people. These people have it all together. They dress nice. They probably listen to worship music all the time and, you know, like serve and love the Lord and the Lord loves them. That's not you. You're a mess. You're a wreck. 
Maybe you feel like there's too much shame or guilt in your past or too much doubt and uncertainty in your future. If that's you today, I want to offer you an opportunity. I want to offer an opportunity for those of us in the room today who need rescue and healing and belonging. I want to offer you an opportunity to surrender your lives to Jesus. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Every person in the room, because I want this to be um, an honest, genuine, between you and the Lord sort of commitment. Maybe there's no one in the room today, and that's okay. But I'm going to ask everybody to close their eyes. Whether you're a Christian or not, none of that matters. Just out of respect for one another, would everyone just close their eyes? And I'm going to ask a couple of questions to a couple of groups of people amongst us today. And not because of emotionalism, not because you're sort of like, oh my gosh, you know, this was a great story or that was, like genuinely from the bottom of your heart, I want to talk to one group of us today first. If you have never surrendered your life to Jesus, like you've never actually said, Jesus, I, need, I, I don't just want you, I don't just want your help, I need you, I need your rescue. I need you to be Lord and Savior in my life. I am at the end of my rope, and I don't know where else to turn, and I'm not even sure that this all makes sense to me, but I am ready and willing to take that leap of faith and just try. If that's you, if you've never surrendered your life to Jesus as Lord and Savior of your life, I know it takes a lot of courage, but with every eye closed, every, all eyes closed in this room, I want you to raise your hand. Raise it high so I can see you. Yeah. I see you guys. Yeah, I see you. I see you. Yeah, I see you. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Put your hands down. Now with every eye closed, I want to ask, if you, like me, maybe you once knew Jesus, but life went astray, and today you want to return to Jesus. Maybe you're here, but genuinely in your heart and mind, you, you've strayed and you're still straying, if that's you. But today you want to return to Jesus and acknowledge him as Lord and Savior in your life once more. If that's you, just first know he receives you with open arms. He's been waiting for if that is you, I want you to, with courage, raise your hand high. Yep, I see you. Yeah, I see you. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yep. Yeah. I see you. For all those who raised their hands, those who are saying yes to Jesus for the very first time, those who are returning to the Lord. Romans chapter 10, Paul reminds us, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. 
which means there is no difference between religious leaders and pagan Canaanites, no difference between those who seem to have it all together and those who are a wreck, no difference between the rich and the poor, the young and the old, the strong and the weak, the confident and the broken, no difference. Because the same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone, every single person who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So if you raised your hand, again, with all eyes closed in the room, I want you to quietly repeat this simple prayer with me right now. Jesus, I receive you as Lord and Savior of my life. I need you and I accept your lordship and the salvation you offer. And I bow to you in worship, in all of life, for all of life. Pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Amen. Um, you guys, those of you who are followers of Jesus, you have dozens of new brothers and sisters in the kingdom of God today. In a moment, we're gonna stand and sing. If you raised your hand, uh, here's what I would ask. I know that after the service, some of you have to go check out your kids and all of that. So a couple of invitations. One, as we sing this last song together, I'm gonna stand right there in front of our prayer room. Um, if you are willing, I would love to meet you and I'd love to pray for you one-on-one. -on -one. In fact, if we have some staff and elders in the room, I didn't pr prepare any of you, but you're all, you know, high level people. So uh, if we have staff and elders in this room, would you just keep an eye on the front? And if you see folks coming up and it's just me, come up and let's pray um, and hear a bit of their stories. Also, for every single person who just raised their hands, here is my ask. I would ask that you scan the QR code in front of you. This feels technical, but it's critically important. Scan the QR code in front of you. And um, there's a tab on there that says, find your next step. Fill that, go to that on your phone and fill that out. Fill it out and let us know you made a commitment today to follow Jesus. I'm, I'm, this, I never talk this way, but this is so critically important. I'm not necessarily asking you, I am telling you. Because you, we say this all the time, you cannot do the Christian life alone. So it's not because we wanna know like who you are and where you live, it's because we wanna come alongside you. So if you said yes to Jesus today, um, come talk to us love to hear your story and pray with you and also let us know okay let us know so we can come alongside you amen let's all stand and sing together